Good morning. Thank you to those of you who are joining us here in the sanctuary, as well as to those of you who are joining us online. We're glad that you're worshiping with us as a church family. Well, friends, it's, uh, it's been a very long year. 2020 has been a very long, very strange year. But believe it or not, it is almost Christmas Day. It is coming, and we'll, have, we'll celebrate Christmas Eve here. Our service is actually at 6 p.m. on the, the day before that, but then I hope that you're able to celebrate Christmas as well. And I know that with coronavirus going on, things may be a little different, and Christmas celebrations may look different than they've looked in the past, but most of us will probably take at least some time and opportunity, even if we're not gathering together, to send or exchange a Christmas gift with someone. After all, even with coronavirus, this is still the busiest shopping season of the year. People love to give gifts and presents for Christmas. And not all of that is a bad thing, because when we give gifts, we should be remembering the greatest gift of all, which is God giving His Son, Jesus. The arrival of God in human form, Jesus Christ coming to live on earth among us. And so many of us celebrate Christmas with some type of gift exchange. But today we're going to continue looking at the Sermon on the Mount, and we're going to talk about a different kind of gift exchange. We're going to talk about a a gift that God gives to us, something that He provides for those who know Him, and then a gift that He expects in return from His people who have a relationship with Him. So maybe you're not going to Christmas parties this year, but you can still participate in this heavenly gift exchange. So if you're not already there, I encourage you to turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 7. We're going to be looking at verses 7 through 12 today, or you can follow along on the screen behind me or on the screen on your computer. Matthew 7, verses 7 through 12. I'm going to read from the English Standard Version. If you're here in the sanctuary or at home if you want to, I'd ask you to please stand to honor the reading of God's Word. And then follow along as I read our passage for today. This is Matthew 7, 7 through 12. Jesus is continuing to speak, and this is what he says. He says, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for fish, will give him a serpent? Well, if you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, then how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for another chance to worship you, another day to praise you. God, thank you for the gift that you give to us, especially the gift of your son. But thank you also, God, for the gift that you hear and you answer prayer. God, please work in our hearts so that we would show your grace, your kindness, your love to others as our gift to you. Not that in any way we can earn your favor or repay what you have done, but just out of celebration for what you do for us through the person and work of your son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name that I pray. Amen. You may be seated. 
Well, church family, we are drawing ever so closer toward the end of the Sermon on the Mound. In fact, this week, this passage we're looking at is in many ways kind of the end of the, the main body of the sermon. He has an introduction, he has his main body, the main thing he's saying, and then he has a conclusion. And this is kind of the end of that main body of the sermon. This part of the sermon, this main body, the main thing he's emphasizing, it started way back in chapter 5, verse 17. There Jesus said, do not think that I have come to abolish, to get rid of the law and the prophets, the Old Testament. I've not come to abolish them. I've come to fulfill them. And then a couple verses later, he says, I tell you, unless your righteousness, your goodness exceeds, goes beyond that of the best religious leaders, the scribes, the Pharisees, unless your righteousness exceeds that, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So this is his main point in the sermon, is the lives that his people should be living. And then he fleshes this out in the body. He first talks about how we relate to God's law. You might remember if you've heard before or if you were here, we talked about the, you have heard it was said, but I say to you. He's fleshing out what it looks like to live for him. He talked about what it should look like to grow, to be more like him in spiritual disciplines, things like prayer and giving and fasting. He told us that we should trust God and not live in anxiety. And then the sermon turned to how we live in relation to others. And last week, we talked about how we're supposed to act with humility toward others, not with judgment. That's a tall task, though. And how do we do that? How can we live towards somebody in humility and not judge them? Well, he turns right to prayer. We can ask God to help us. We may not always be able to talk about heavenly things. As verse 6 says, we're not to give to dogs what is holy or throw pearls before pigs, but we can always ask God to give us the words to say. And so if we want to know how we should interact with others, well, then we need to take it to God in prayer. And when we do that, we receive an amazing gift. And that's the first part we looked at. When we take our concerns, when we ask God, how can we live for you? God's gift to us is answered prayer. Answered prayer. If you're using the notes or following along in the note sheet that was available in the back, the first one is answered prayer. God promises to answer our prayers. He also talks about this. It's here in Matthew. It's also in Luke 11 and Luke 6. Think about how amazing this is. This is the God who can do anything that he pleases, anything at all. He's a God who always does what is right, what is good, what is wise and loving. This God answers our prayers. We talked about prayer a few weeks ago, and we said that it's not mindlessly just repeating a phrase. No, no, prayer is something much more than that. On these verses, scholar Danny Aiken said that prayer is an invitation to an extravagant banquet where everything we need is present. It's coming before God. He has what we need, and he desires us to ask it, ask him for it. And he answers our prayer. Jesus basically repeats the same thing in verses 7 and 8. We'll read them again in a second, but he says, ask, seek, knock, and then ask, seek, knock again. He's calling us to approach God in prayer. We would be foolish to reject this. If we do, then we suffer the consequences. Not that it's bad or evil, but we don't get what we need if we do not ask. Jesus' half-brother James simply said, you do not have because you do not ask. And so Jesus calls us to persistent and expectant prayer. God loves us. He will answer us. 
Verses 7 and 8 tell us about this in the terms of asking, seeking, and knocking. We are to persist in praying. That's your next blank on the outline. Again, verses 7 and 8 say, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. Jesus says it again, For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. He's calling us to continual action, to continue in prayer. Keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking. Persist, endure in this. If we ask, it will be received. But we need to ask God. We need to pray with humility. Recognize, God, I can't do this on my own. God, I don't know what to do now. Ask Him. If we seek Him, we will find Him. We can intentionally pursue God, pursue His will, His purpose. If we knock, the door will be opened. If we want to know, God, what is the way that I should go? We can be confident that God will provide and direct to what is best. Then we can spend a lot of time talking about specific difference. What's what does it mean to ask versus seek or knock? They're really just all ways of talking about prayer and coming before God in prayer. And we adjust our prayer. We may say something different depending on what our need is. We say, God, I I need help with this conversation I have to have today. And so we're asking God for help. Or maybe we say, God, I'm not sure what to do in this situation. I, I need to seek you. Know what you're like in order to know how to act here. Or maybe we see an opportunity, some way to go. Say, God, I'm going to knock at this opportunity. Pursue this course I think will honor you. If it does, let me continue in it. Our form of address, how we pray, may change. But our focus never should. We should always be focused asking God, the Lord that we know. We saw this in the Old Testament as well, or we do see it. In Proverbs, it talks about, this is God's wisdom speaking, and wisdom says, I love those who love me, those who seek me diligently, finally, find me. In Jeremiah, God says, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. Again, telling us how God answers prayer. The New Testament continues this theme of God answering prayer. Jesus will say in the Gospel of John, if you abide, if you remain in me, if you remain close to me, if my words, my truth abides, remains in you, then ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Now, when he says that, he's obviously talking about something that honors him, a purpose, a goal that he has. And John, who wrote that gospel, also wrote a letter, and he clarifies this in his letter. He says, this is the confidence we have toward him, we have toward God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. If it's according to God's will, his purpose, his desire, then we can have confidence that God will answer us. We're not talking about what we selfishly want, the things that we desire for ourselves, but the things that are necessary for our daily provision, for our spiritual growth, that God will provide. His answer to those things might not be exactly the way we would want them answered, might not be according to our timing, but it will ultimately be for what is best. Sometimes that's really frustrating. I know experience for years, and I'm sure many of you have, about praying for something over and over and over again, and nothing seems to happen. Sometimes you have the blessing of on the other side looking back and saying, oh, okay, 
I see what God was doing during that time. But maybe you're not there. Maybe you're in the middle of it. I've been asking God for this over and over and over. I'm, I'm pretty sure it honors him. It would bring him glory. We may pray for something, and it, we may not see it happen on this side of eternity. But we can have confidence, as John says, that God's purposes move forward and that it will make sense one day. And since God answers prayer, we know he answers prayer. He says to ask, seek, knock. Then we should want to pray. We should want to address him. But sometimes we don't. Maybe we lack, uh, maybe we have too much pride, or maybe we lack the confidence to come before God. We may feel that we cannot approach God. That's God. He's holy. He's great. Why does he care about my little problems? But if we have a relationship with God, through Jesus Christ, and we have been brought near to him. This is what, remember, Jesus is talking to people who have a relationship with God. If you know God, then you can ask, you can seek, you can knock. God desires to hear that from you. And so for God's people, our lives should be defined by prayer. A couple weeks ago, we had a Thanksgiving prayer service, and our theme verse for that passage, theme theme verse we were using for that day, was 1 Thessalonians 5. It said, rejoice, always pray without ceasing. And that means we give thanks in all circumstances. For this, rejoicing always, praying without ceasing, giving thanks in all circumstances, this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. That is God's will for us. We can pray to him and we can have confidence that he will answer us because we are actually praying to our good heavenly Father. So we're talking about how God answers prayer, and kind of the message we need to get is that we persist in praying because we are praying to our good heavenly Father. Look at verses 9 through 11 again. Jesus says, Which one of you, if his son, if his daughter, would ask him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, well, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? God is our good Father. So that means we can expect good things from God. Jesus is making a logical argument here from lesser to greater. He's saying, if parents love like this, how much more will God love? And he's saying God's love is much better than the love of an earthly parent. Our prayers are to our heavenly father. He is better than the best earthly father could be. And he gives us what is good. Jesus uses this image of giving a a stone instead of bread or a serpent instead of a fish. Well, if you grab a particular rock, it might look something like a piece of bread. You might get a rock that's roughly the shape of a, a piece of bread you have, but it's, it's not the same thing. It doesn't, bless you, it doesn't have the same nutritional value. It could be dangerous to try to eat it. In the same way, a fish is something you can eat. A, a serpent is something that's potentially very dangerous. And no loving father would do that. Jesus' argument is neither does God. He doesn't do that either. He gives us what we need. Now, before I unpack that, I Let's step aside from the text and think for a minute, because some of us, that might not be our experience with God or with life. 
Now, maybe it's, we think, I've been asking God for something, and he, and he doesn't seem to give me what is good. And I know that that's hard, and that's difficult to experience, but the confidence that Jesus is trying to instill in us is that God is actually good, and even when you can't see it, it will be for his good purposes, and you will see it one day. I know it might be hard right now, but you will see it one day. Now, what about the other side of that, when Jesus compares his love to being greater than that in an earthly father? There may be some of you here or, or watching online that you did not really experience the love of an earthly father. And if that's true, then I'm very sorry. I, I, I did not have that experience. I can't imagine what that is like. I'm not going to pretend to. And maybe you hear Jesus talking and he says in verse 11, if you then who are evil, and you're like, oh yeah, I know that. I know that people are evil. But I want you to see that even there, when he's talking about the love of a father, he's still recognizing that people are evil. evil. People are often fallen. They're sinful. They make decisions that do not please God. God has always known this. And very, very early in the Bible, in Genesis 6, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. If your experience with people is that they are evil, that they are terrible to you, that you can't trust people, God understands that. He knows what is in people's hearts. In fact, notice the passage isn't up there, but if you have verse 11 for you, notice though how Jesus describes people. He says, if you then who are evil, he doesn't say since we're evil, we can trust God. No, Jesus says you then because Jesus is like his heavenly father. He is not sinful. He is not fallen. He does not act in a way that harms us. He acts in a way for our good. Like his father, he is perfectly righteous, holy, and good. And so if you haven't had the best experience with an earthly father, then God can be that father that you never had. He will actually love you better than any earthly father could. Somebody could have the greatest dad and father there ever was, but if they don't know God, they don't know what a father's love can truly be like. But you can If you are adopted by God, if you are brought into his family, if you turn away from your sin and put your faith and trust in God, you can be a part of his adopted family. And then something wonderful happens. The Apostle Paul says this, you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. You have received the spirit of adoption as sons, as daughters. And now you can cry, you can address God as your Abba, Father. You can talk to God as you would the best earthly father there could be. And he is so much better than that. Now, if we look back at the language of our text, Jesus's point is that even earthly fathers will fall short. And even if they do that, they still look out for their children as much as possible. A good father, a father who's filling his role of father will look out for his children. And Jesus's argument is that God loves us so much more than that. God will do so much more than that. He gives good things, good gifts to his children. God is like the very best father times infinity, and he never makes a mistake. Again, in James, James says that every good gift, every perfect gift comes from above, coming down from the father of lights, with whom there is no variation 
no shadow due to change. The good things we get ultimately come from God. So when we pray, when we ask, seek, knock, He gives us what we need for His glory, for our good. He will only give us what is best for us. He won't give us everything we want, but He'll give us what is best for us so that we can know Him, that we can do His will, that we can be more like His Son, Jesus. He will give us those things. And that's why in other places when it talks about God's gift, it says that the best gift that he can give us is to be with us, to be in our presence, to give us his Holy Spirit. His Holy Spirit is with those who know him, who have a relationship with him. He gives us what is best. Pastor Charles Spurgeon said, our heavenly father will correct our prayer. He will give us not what we ignorantly seek, but what we really need. And then he has a good observation. It would be a terrible thing if God always gave us all we asked for. Our Heavenly Father himself knows how to give far better than we know how to ask. We ask for something we think is great, but it doesn't work out for our good. As I was thinking about this, I was remembering um, a movie. uh, It's actually like 17 years old now, but maybe some of you have seen the movie Bruce Almighty. Now, it's it's not a Christian film, and it's not a family film, so let me put that out there. But if you have the maturity to watch it, there are a lot of things that are thought-provoking in it. The real basic premise, I'm not going into detail, the real basic premise is a guy who God gives him his power for the city of Buffalo for a a set period of time. And he has all of God's power, and he is responsible for all the people in the greater Buffalo area. And he becomes overwhelmed with all the prayers people have. People keep praying and praying and praying, and he's so overwhelmed by all these prayers that he just says, okay, yes to everybody's prayers. And things go horribly wrong in the city of Buffalo. There's chaos everywhere because we don't actually know what we need. And that's why it's so blessing what Charles Spurgeon is saying, what God is saying in our text, that God hears what we say and he gives us what we need, what is good for us. It's incredible that God knows how to care for each of us. That should be a comfort encouragement to us during this time at the end of a rough year. We can face any challenge because God is with us and he answers our prayers. Another pastor named Martin Lloyd-Jones said, I cannot imagine a better, more cheering, or more comforting statement with which to face all the uncertainties, all the hazards of our life in this world, in this time, than that contained in verses 7 through 11, that God hears us and he answers our prayers. Now, even though we may hear that, and we may say, that, that's wonderful that that's so true, do we really pray that way? Do we pray expecting that God will answer our prayers in the way that is best for us? I know I I often don't. I may pray, "Uh, God, it'd be really great if this thing happened instead of praying with, no, God is going to bring the best result in this. He's going to bring the result that most honors him, that most makes me and the people involved most like Jesus. Too often I try to do it on my own. Remember that quote I said earlier, that prayer is like a banquet, that it's laid out for us what we need. All that we need to get through life, all that we need to live out what God has told us is available to us. We should continually hunger, thirst to be at that banquet, to have what God has provided for us. We should continually want God more and more, seek him more and more in prayer. 
The Apostle Paul said, not that I've already obtained this, not that I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own. I still hunger for more of God because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we can know God better. Even if you think you know him really well right now, you can know him better. And you can know him better if you persist in prayer. I would encourage you to do that. Set aside time each day to communicate with your heavenly father in prayer. Maybe that's not a regular part of your life. Well, maybe try a minute later today or try a minute tomorrow. And if that goes well for a day or two, maybe try two minutes the day after that or five or 10. The point is you can know God better. You can have a closer relationship with your loving heavenly father who will give you what you need and what is best for you. You do that. You find that as we persist in prayer and knowing him. That is the gift that God gives to us, not only at Christmas, but every day. Well, the message title I said, though, was a gift exchange. So that's God's gift for us. But what is our gift for him? What do we bring to this party? Well, our gift is since God does this for us, we do unto others. Verse 12, immediately after this, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. You might be familiar with this phrase. It's often called the golden rule, which we say it's golden. It's the most, most important. It's, it's a rule, of, an example for living that shines brightly. I actually read somewhere that it may have gotten that name because a particular emperor inscribed this passage in gold on, in his throne room. And so maybe that's where that phrase first came from. Regardless, this golden rule is very easy to read, very easy to nod our head to, but very difficult to practice. But it is a general principle for kingdom citizens, people who know God, how they are to live in this world. Pastor J.C. Ryle said, we are to deal with others as we would like them to deal with us. This is real Christianity. And God challenges us to obey this golden rule. One of those good gifts that he gives us when we ask him is the ability to live this out. Notice your text should say in verse 12, so or therefore, it's connecting us to what came before. If we're asking God for good things, this is how we respond. Because God is a good father who gives us good things, we should treat others the way that we would want to be treated. Jesus is reminding us of what God has done to motivate us to show this love to others. He's saying God is going to answer prayer. The God of the universe is going to answer your prayers. So you do unto others what you would have them do to you. If we compare those two things together, it's really a small thing that we're doing. I know taking on its own, do unto others, that sounds huge, but compared to God who's going to answer all our prayers, he's going to answer, give us what is good, living for someone else, doing for others, that's really a small thing. Pastor John Piper said, you can't live out the golden rule without first experiencing the truth of verses 7 through 11. That is without the deep confidence that your father will give you every good thing you really need. And this is why it's, people find it so hard to live it out. Because if you just tell people, do unto others, think about other people, live for them, but you don't tell them God will help you do this if you ask them, 
You're setting people up for an impossible task. And we just try to go through life. I'm going to live for others, do unto others, but we have not prayed, ask God for his help. Then we're only going to treat other people with judgment. That's what we talked about last week, that our tendency is to judge people, their motives and what they're doing. But if we ask for God's help, then we can treat others the way that God intends. We can have inner freedom from our own guilty conscience. We can have confidence to love others. We don't have to live to look out for ourselves because we're praying to God. We're trusting him to give us the good things we need. If we're trusting, yes, God is going to give me good things, that frees us to then show love, care, and concern for other people. I don't have to take care of myself because I've prayed. I've trusted God. Now, of course, that doesn't mean we act without wisdom or that we throw away responsibilities. I'm not saying that, but I'm saying we recognize that God is the one who gives us what we need. He gives us whatever, everything. And since he does that, we can show that type of love, whatever, and everything that we think should happen to us, we can show that to others with no exceptions. Every action that we could want is what we should do. This principle we see in this text, this golden rule, it's not something that's 100% unique to the, the Christian faith. It's a principle that you find in most religions, faiths, law codes that have existed around the world. It existed before Jesus said this. It uh, is in other laws and cultures after that. But there is something pretty unique about this one. Usually, in those other law codes or in other religions, the golden rule is phrased something like this. It's phrased, don't do to someone what you wouldn't want them to do to you. Or don't do this thing to someone or else this will happen to you. It's phrased in this negative sense. But Jesus is one of the few who says it in the positive. He doesn't talk about what we shouldn't do. What he says is, whatever you wish others would do to you, do also to them. He's challenging us to take an active role. He's not saying don't just live your life by not doing things to hurt people, but actively choose to love others. Scholar D.A. Carson said, Here there is no permission to withdraw into a world where I offend no one, but accomplish no positive good either. There are other faiths about that. Some people try to make Christianity about it, that if we just pull away from everyone, we live in our own little circle, then, then we're good, then we're honoring God. But that's not what Jesus says. He says we have to think through, what would I want someone to do for me, and then to do that for others. It's not enough just to not be hurting people. Jesus calls us to actively love. It's not enough to go through life not harming, not upsetting others. We must make a loving difference in their lives. Our faith is not about forgetting others. Our faith is not about withdrawing from the world. That is not true Christianity. Our faith should lead us to work harder, to love others more fervently, To see, here's someone who's broken, who's hurting. If I was like that person, I would want someone to come and talk to me. I would want someone to show grace and mercy to me. I would want someone to build a relationship with me. Our faith calls us to then go and do that, whatever we would want someone to do for us, to do that for others. Why should we do that? What what motivates this? Well, we could look at the example of Jesus. It's how Jesus lived. He showed love and grace to the hurting, the abused, the outcast. But Jesus gives us another reason in this passage. He tells us, for this is, this fulfills, this sums up, this is the essence 
of the law and the prophets, which is a phrase that means the Old Testament. That part in the front of our Bibles, if you want to know what that's about, one of the main things it's about is doing unto others as you would have them do to you. And so people who live out this command are fulfilling the purpose of the Old Testament law. Jesus makes this clear in a conversation later in the Gospel of Matthew. Somebody asked him, teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments, depend, hang, rely all of the law and the prophets. All of the law, all of the Old Testament is summed up in those two commands, loving God and loving your neighbor, loving others. This is the essence of God's character in the Bible. This is what he is trying to communicate in the Old Testament. Say, oh, pastor, I don't like the Old Testament. Well, take a look at it and see if it's talking about loving God with all your heart, soul, and mind, or see if it's talking about loving your neighbor as yourself. And if you approach it that way, you may see more of God's truth in it. The intent of God's law is that people would love God and that people would live with a heart to do unto others. The very first Christians got this. The Apostle Paul got it in Galatians 5. He says, the whole law is fulfilled in one word, one command, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. He understood what it was about. He understood he was to live with a mind for God first and then others second. He knew that there was a way we were supposed to treat people who bared the image of God. If God created us, if we believe that, then we will show his grace to, the, to everyone else that he created as well. Now, those two things, loving God, love your neighbor as yourself, that there's, of course, more the Bible says. There are lots of specific commands and instructions about specific situations, but as just a, a general rule of life, if you're considering what to do in a particular circumstance and challenge you face, and you can't find a particular command, a particular instruction in the Bible about that situation, it's probably safest to default to this. Go back here. You shall love your neighbor as yourself, or whatever you wish others would do to you, do also to them. That's a safe place to fall back on. If you make a decision there, even if it maybe wasn't the wisest one, you still have a heart that's honoring God. Something else that's interesting in this verse is the very last phrase in our passage is he says, this is the law and the prophets. We read at the beginning that this body, this main part of the sermon began with him saying, I've not come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have come to fulfill it. That's chapter five, verse 17. So this is the end of the body, the main part of the sermon. He has these phrases here to bracket the whole thing. He started with the law and the prophets and now he's ending with the law of the prophets. And in many ways, it's a summary of what he said before. Whatever you wish others would do, do also to them. This is the law and the prophets. Next week, we'll start to look at Jesus's conclusion to his sermon, his final application. Now again, saying something like this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself or do unto others. There are many people who admire that. If you were to ask most people what Jesus' message was, they'll say, oh, it's do unto others. If you were to ask people what their favorite thing Jesus taught was, even if they don't know Jesus, they'll say, oh, I love how he said about doing 
to other people. And we can admire that too. That, that is a wonderful statement and aspiration. But again, very few live it out. And the reason is because we are impossibly self-centered creatures. We are always inclined to view the whole world as revolving around us. And that's our natural state. Our, our, our sin, our rebellion against God doesn't lead us to think about God and his world. It makes us think about us and the things that we see around us. So if we're going to fulfill, apply this command that Jesus gives, how do we do it? You know, I, I thought about two key questions that we should ask ourselves. The first question we should ask is, well, what do we want? What do we want? And then the second question is, how can we do that for others? I'm just using Jesus' words here. Whatever you wish others would do to you, do also to them. Look inward and then act outward. The way we want to be treated should determine how we treat others. So first, what do we want? Ask, ask yourself, what do, what do I like? What, what do I think is what should be happening to me in this situation of life that I'm in? Then do that for someone else. We can sit back and complain, I wish somebody would do this to me. I wish somebody would show this kind of love to me. I wish somebody would reach out and call me. I'm, I'm feeling lonely. And we, we can live in that place of bitterness and anger that people aren't loving us the way we want. Or we can say, who can I do that for? Who would appreciate hearing that from me? That's not an excuse when, for us to not reach out to, to somebody else. I'm not, not saying that. But if we are feeling, I wish somebody would do this for me, then I would say, I can't say with 100% certainty, but if we know God and we're living close to him, I'd say that may be the Holy Spirit pushing you into what you should do for someone else. We must constantly work to put ourselves in the shoes of others. Not just think about, this would be great for me, but as Paul says, let each of you look not to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. It's not that they say, okay, well, I'm not going to eat food anymore, and I'm going to give all my food to somebody else. And look at his words. It's not that we don't take care of ourselves. It's that we also think about what would be beneficial for someone else. What does this person want to happen to them? Well, that is what I should do. We won't do this perfectly. Every person is fallen. Every person is sinful. We all fall short of what God desires. But then that brings us to how can I show kindness to this person in a way that will reveal God's grace? It will be difficult. It's always a challenge to love people who are different than us. It, it's always a challenge to love people because they're not us. And they, I want to think the world's about me and everybody else wants to think the world's about them. And that makes it hard to love, but we're still called to do it. We're to look at others the way that God looks at us. We talked about this. He is our heavenly loving father. If we have a relationship with him, he sees us as his children. And so we should see one another as brothers and sisters we care about, that we want to show the love God has shown us to them. Pastor Spurgeon had a great prayer. He said, oh, that all men acted on it, this golden rule, and then there would be no slavery, no war, no sweating, no striking, no lying, no robbing. All would be justice and love. And many people stop there. Oh, that everybody did this. Oh, well, people don't. But no, he goes on. He says, Lord, teach it to me. Write it on the fleshly tablets of my renewed heart, my heart that loves you. Write it out full in my life. 
I love that humility there. He's not saying, if only everybody else would love people. Spurgeon didn't own slaves. He was a pacifist. He didn't fight in wars. He, he wasn't lying or robbing people, but he doesn't complain about that. He says, God, write this law in my heart. Help me to live this out. May my life be said, there was somebody who lived for others, who did unto others. That was his prayer. So God's gift is that he answers our prayer. Our gift return is we show love to others. Now, I know that we're all mature people, so I'm sure you never do this, but some families, none, none here, some families make giving gifts a competition and it becomes who can give the best gift, the most creative gift, and uh, everybody does that. No, no, I'm sure nobody here does that, or nobody watching online, but, but some people do this. They have competition in how they give gifts. Who gives the best gift? Well, I have some bad news for you. In terms of the gift exchange with God, it is impossible for you to win and have the best gift, because no matter what you do, God has already given us the greatest gift. The greatest gift was he came to earth in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. But we also even see that in our text because these verses show us the heart of Jesus. Jesus, fully God and fully man. Jesus hears, he answers our prayer because he is God. But Jesus was also a man and he lived thinking about others, thinking of others more than himself. He loves us, he answers prayer, he meets our needs. He thought about our needs before his own. One of the most famous verses in the Bible says, God so loved the world that he gave, he gave the gift of his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And this isn't Pastor John tying on Jesus at the end of the sermon. We, we talked about this in the passage. We talked about prayer, asking God. We're aware of our need. We're saying, God, I need help. I need you to give me something. Well, God gave his only son. We would be lost. We are lost without Christ if we do not know him. On our own, we don't like God's law. We don't like what it says about we should love God first and love our neighbors as ourselves. We don't like that, but that's why God gave the gift of his only son to change our hearts, to make us like him. God doesn't treat us as we deserve. No matter what we have done, he still gives us this gift. As one of the most powerful verses in scripture says, Romans 5 verse 8, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, while we still thought about ourselves, while we rejected God, while we turned away from what God has done for us, Christ died for us. That's God's gift. That is what he has done for you. So friends, what will you do? Maybe you don't have a relationship with Jesus. You don't know him in that way that you feel you can address God as your heavenly father then I pray you'll come to know him. You'll have a conversation with someone about how you can know Jesus and have a relationship with him. I would be thrilled to have that conversation with you, but maybe there's someone you feel more comfortable, someone else that you feel more comfortable talking to about that. I would encourage you to have that conversation t today. Maybe you do know him, but you have to say, you know, pastor, I haven't been 
depending on him as much as I probably should. I try to make it through each day on my own. I don't ask him for what I need. I don't seek him when I need wisdom. I don't knock before I pursue this opportunity and that opportunity. Maybe I should spend more time in prayer. Then commit to that. Start small and build. Or maybe you think, you know, Pastor, this has been a very, it's been a very rough, it's been a very trying year. And it's all these things about virus and everything else. I've been thinking about myself a lot and about me and my own. And I haven't been thinking about others. I, I need to start doing that. Then that's wonderful. Commit to that. Ask God, God, help me to love others the way that you do. Maybe you have done that or you're still thinking through that. But God, who we just give the little measly thing of loving others as we love ourselves. Look at how we're doing what we already do. We already love ourselves. He's just saying also do that to others. God answers our prayer for that. God gave us Jesus. So let's praise him for doing that. Worship him, not only at Christmas, but every day of every year of the time we have. And let's praise him because he is worthy of that kind of praise.